um, welcome to episode 32 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, um, and me from awardsdaily.com, and our special guest, Michael Gray. He is um, an Oscars expert, actually, and I've known him for 30 years. He's my good friend, and we're finally having him on the podcast. We've been wanting to have him as a guest. He really wants to just kind of listen, but if he finds that there's something important or urgent to say, he will add it. <laughs> it's about time we had an Oscar expert on here. There you go. Yeah. I know, right? Because we're certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> but we play one on TV. We play one on... We're certainly not as... Well, I won't even start with the forum. So I'm There's no guess. such thing as an Oscar expert. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't even believe in such a thing. You know, yeah, you... I, yeah, actually, I, I, I hate the terminology Oscar expert. <laughs> I'm not. I just know a lot no. about stuff, you know. Okay, I... As far as history goes, I'll give you that. I mean, I'll give I, that, that's possible. People can be, you know, can know a lot about the history. But I'm, uh, as far as being an Oscar predictor, nobody's an expert at that, I don't think. You just no. get lucky with guesses, you know. Right. You can guess. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Michael was um, one of the first people to tell me that Crash was going to win, actually. Remember, Michael? <laughs> yeah, I knew it was going to win. I mean, that was. And I talked gift. you out of it. I mean, nobody <laughs> wanted to see a gay movie, a movie about gay cowboys win an Oscar for Best uh... Picture. I mean, Remember I talked you out of it, though, didn't I? No, I always said it was going to be crash. <laughs> you did? No, I told you it was totally going to be Brokeback, but I was wrong. Uh, I knew it wasn't going to be Brokeback Mountain. But you were one of the few people that knew that it was going to be crash. That's all. I just wanted to say that. And, and you also, yeah. of course, knew it would be Argo last year. You knew that, too. So um, we're talking about the Oscar year 1979, and uh, that was the year that Kramer versus Kramer pretty much swept the Oscars. It, it was the... Uh, um, Really, the film that everybody was talking about that year, uh, it really kind of hit the public in a big way. I think it's still a lot of the themes in Kramer versus Kramer are still relevant to um, culture now. You know, it, it touched on so many things on uh, working mothers, single mothers, uh, divorce, custody battles, um, you know, fathering, uh, you know, father as the main parent. It just, it tapped into so many different things at once, but... Um, and it, it easily won Best Picture. It really didn't have any competition except for four really great movies, which was Apocalypse Now, Norma Ray, Breaking Away, and all that jazz. I mean, incredible movies. It was also the same year that Alien came out, and Alien didn't do so well at the box office, so they considered it a disappointment. Um, <clears throat> Bette Midler starred in The Rose that year, uh, and it was also the year of the China Syndrome with Jane Fonda. Alien did. It came in fifth at the box office that year, but it cost so much to make that it that it was well known that it didn't really make a profit because they it was they went over budget and they spent like sixteen million dollars on advertising and so it was still in the red at the end of the year even though it came in right behind Rocky two and right it was ahead of Apocalypse Now it made more money than Apocalypse Now but it was considered to be a financial failure. You're right. What was the budget for Alien? I think yeah. like uh, close to 20 or something like that. So all, all together, all together, like $35 million. And so it, it was like, you know, when you figure it all in, it, it was like $2 million in the red at the end of the year. Wow. Because that's a huge amount for 1979 standards for a movie, $35 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it really was for sure. I was the I was assumption that it made like maybe $10 million, something like that. 
that it was made for. I didn't realize it cost that much to make that movie. Yeah. Actually, the reason, because it, it didn't turn a profit, that's why it took them six or seven years uh, before they decided they wanted to do a sequel. Ordinarily, you know, if you've got a hot movie, you want to hit the sequel button right away. But it was 1986 before Alien 2 came along, right? Right, yeah. Aliens, yeah. And... Um, but that was such a pivotal year, even though it was it was just on the the cusp of the eighties. Um, Alien really changed the way that we looked at horror movies and sci-fi. I think, um, and I mean later he would <clears throat> Ridley Scott would make <clears throat> excuse me Blade Runner, which also kind of changed the you know the future of, of sci-fi films. He he was so known for those kind of grunge. Um, sci-fi movies, which nowadays everything's so slick and high tech, but back then it was, you know, it, it really the movies that he made really have lasting power because they feel they felt so real, and they feel so real now. <clears throat> Star Wars was exactly the opposite. It was you know it was a lot of special effects, and it really did it's feel like a so, fantasy. So shiny, everything was so shiny and bright and brand new in Star Wars, right? Um, and that's and Ridley Scott was an art director. He went to school as an art director, so he was really in tune to the way things ought to look. And he also uh, was a transcontinental traveler. He flew back and forth from London to New York a lot, and he saw the 747s were falling apart little by little. You go into the bathroom, and there'd be graffiti in the bathroom of a 747. So he could see that even you know all the high tech stuff that we were living with was already starting to look shabby and he wanted uh, the the uh, the ship and alien to look like that too and of course hr uh, geiger had a lot to a big part to play in the look of the film too hmm. because i think when they went to germany to get hr geiger and brought him to the studios the first thing he asked the production secretary for was boxes and boxes full of bones so they went to like the slaughterhouse and brought him all these bones that he would embed into the walls of the caverns and even in the hallways. And he wanted he wanted the doors of the of the Nostromo to look like you know pelvic bones and stuff like that. Wow! <laughs> so it was really bizarre. It was really a totally different look than from Star Wars. I have one. I'm, I've I'm, I've known talked for about two min two minutes here, but I want to say one really great quote about Star Wars and Alien. If Star Wars was the Beatles, then Alien was the Rolling Stone. Yeah, I can go with that. Or Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, so, and we had... Even if, even if it had been a hit, do you think it would have gotten any sort of Oscar traction? It seems to me that because it's a genre a genre picture, it sort of has an uphill battle. You practically have to be a, a cultural moment like Star Wars before you're welcomed into the club. And it seemed like um, Alien wasn't taken all that seriously back in its own day. Did Am she... Wrong? She not didn't get a nomination for that, huh? Sigourney but Weaver? It, it did get a... a it was... It did win an Oscar for special effects. Alien. No, I know, but um, I'm surprised that Sigourney Weaver didn't get a Best Actress nomination. If, if she, if that had come out today, she certainly would have, because the roles for women are so few and far between. It just so happened at this time there were a lot of great roles for women, but I'm still surprised that she wasn't nominated, huh? Weird. Well, you still had a lot of um, old Hollywood who probably would not nominate an actress for an action film. You know, they were still part of that old school. Um, like Academy, you know, mm -hmm. when she got nominated in 86, the Academy was like starting to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why she got nominated, you know, but she wouldn't have been nominated in 79 only because, like I said, it was old school Hollywood, old school Academy members. Craig, you're right. Not only was it a genre film in that it was sci-fi, but it was genre in that it was a horror film. It was a right. sci-fi horror, which had never been done before. So it was a combination of the two film, two types of films that the Academy never recognizes. 
Yeah, and <clears throat> they didn't have, they weren't lacking for strong female parts back then. So <clears throat> best actress looked like Sally Field for Norma Ray, who won. She didn't only win, she won everything heading up to the race. Jill Clayburg for Starting Over, Jane Fonda for The China Syndrome, Marsha Mason for Chapter 2. Come on. That's, that's, that's a joke, really. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and Bette Midler for The Rose, which was totally deserved. So, Well, that was cool. That, sound like, that, that Chapter 2 was almost like her swan song, like in movies, because after Chapter 2, she wasn't she didn't do much of anything. I know. There was no that. chapter three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> three. But still, come on. That's just lame. But oh well. Let's talk for a second about how great Sally Field is, though. I mean, at that point in her career, she was pretty much known for Gidget and being Burt Reynolds' sidekick. And here, all of a sudden, she comes out of, almost out of nowhere to turn in this pretty terrific performance in Norma Ray and kind of captured everybody's imagination. Not only Burt Reynolds' sidekick, but Burt Reynolds' uh, live-in girlfriend. Right. They well, were, they that's were, that's kind of what I meant too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I thought they'd been in movies before uh, together too, right? Had they yeah. or not? Yeah. yeah. Smoking in the yeah, band. Yeah, they did. It, it was Burt Reynolds who read the script first. She didn't think she was really capable. She didn't think she could do the part justice. But he read the script, and he, he says that he told her as soon as he finished the script, and the Oscar goes to Sally Field for Norma Ray. Mm. That's what he told her. So if you don't take this, you're crazy because you won the Oscar for it. Wow. If well, only he had as much sense about his own <clears throat> career. Right. Well, wasn't it the movie Sybil that got her recognized because before Sybil, no one took her seriously. And then she did Sybil and she gave Mm -hmm. such a great performance. She won the Emmy that Hollywood movie Hollywood started to look at her and go, there's something there. Yeah, she was famous for um, before that. She was famous for uh, uh, The Flying Nun. And and then she did Sybil. And that's when she people started to see that she was a serious actress. And then, of course, she did this and she won and then later did Places in the Heart and won again. So, mm-hmm. you know, they liked her. She only not, was nominated twice, and she won twice at that time. Um, she was funny, though, because she sort of dissed the Oscars. This is what she said about them. Um, I think it's exploitive. I think it's exploitative, over-commercialized, frequently offensive, and shouldn't be televised, she told reporters. Even though industry pundits ascribe Norma Ray's surprise Best Picture nomination to Fox's massive trade paper campaign. Sure, I'll be there, the nominee said. And if I wasn't coming, they'd still go on with the show. But then after she won, she kind of changed her tune a little and said, um, uh, you know, that she was that she was actually happy, and that it was kind of like that. You know, now that she's in the club, she kind of likes them better. <laughs> right. But um, it's amazing, isn't it, that people could get away? We hear that time after time throughout the '70s, where people really diss the Oscars and yeah. they win anyway. And they can get they got away with it back then. People they're really afraid. Actresses, actors and actresses especially, are really wary about doing that now. And if they do, it's it's like word gets around really fast. Well, he just sunk himself, you know, yeah. like uh, Joaquin Phoenix did last right. year. You don't dare speak against the Oscars because yeah. they're so yeah. powerful. You'll get dissed. But back then, it was sort of like you were considered a serious actor if you dissed the Academy Awards because mm-hmm. they thought of it as just a silly contest and it wasn't serious. For serious actors or artists, um, but but the Academy, so, the Academy needed the actors more than the actors needed the Academy, right? And now, of course, it's the opposite is true. The really the Oscars are the only thing holding up this kind of quality actor-driven entertainment. The Academy is it. That's it. The Oscar race because the public aren't they're turning up, but they're not turning up like they are for superhero movies and sequels. So, in the way, the Oscars are preserving a tradition. Um, 
And that's why Hollywood needs them. That's why actors need them now compared to how they used to. It's just a shame that they don't have the kind of parts for women that they used to have back in the 70s. I mean, this, this is an incredible year for actresses. And if you go through this decade and even the next decade, you'll always find at least one, but but often more, um, of the five Best Picture nominees being female-driven um, films. And I'm surprised that the China Syndrome didn't get a Best Picture nomination because it was produced by Jane Fonda's um, company. And actually, funnily enough, Richard Dreyfus had the lead in um, China Syndrome before it was taken over by Jane Fonda. It was going to be a male part. And they... Um, and both Jack Nicholson and, and Robert Redford turned down the parts in, or the Jack Lemon part, and then he ended up being really happy to take that role because he was it, it, it aligned with his politics at the time, Jack Lemon, and he was one of the I best th- actor nominees. I think it was considered uh, everyone was real kind of scared of it because they thought it was was too political. But you know what happened two weeks after the movie opened, after the China Syndrome opened, Three Mile oh, Island. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And so everybody wanted to go see, everybody was scared shitless about Three Mile Island, and they wanted to see a movie that pretty much predicted it because there's a line in the movie, Jack Lemmon says something like, if this happens, it, it'll make, it will make, it will render an area the size of Pennsylvania uninhabitable. And Three Mile Island was, of course, in Pennsylvania. And that was in the script of the movie. So it was like so prescient that, that people wanted to go see it for that reason. So it became a big hit in spite of the fact that it was not the type of thing that people would ordinarily, you know, flock to see. Yeah. And the best actor not race was um, Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer, who won. Uh, Jack Lemmon for The China Syndrome, Al Pacino and Justice for All, Roy Scheider, All That Jazz, and Peter Sellers being there. That's incredible. <laughs> That's a pretty freaking great lineup. I know. So I it think is. Craig's the only one who watched Norma Ray. I tried to watch it, but I couldn't get my hands on a copy of it before the podcast. What'd you think of it? I thought it was great. It held up um, surprisingly well, but I couldn't. I mean, it was heavily, obviously, message oriented, but um, I loved this strong female character who did her own thing without without really necessarily depending on a man to do her thing. There were men in her life. They played important parts in the story, but it was really her story and and all the things that she did. She was the, the key to the whole thing. But what I kept thinking of as I was watching it, how sad that basically all of the things that these people fought for are now jobs in China. So the, the happy ending that it has is oh, God. happy if you can go ahead. 20 years. Are you serious? Well, yeah, it's a textile company and they're all, mm-hmm. those are all Chinese jobs now. Oh my well, you know God. what too, not only that, but, but the, but the, but the movie was, was the happy ending was fictionalized because the actual Norma Ray her real name is not even Norma Ray because she didn't want some of the scenes in the movie, so they had to change her name for the movie. And she was never hired by the textile industry. Again, she was blacklisted for the rest of her life. And the, the climactic scene of the movie where they all – she holds up the union sign and then they all go to vote for the union and they, now they have the union. That never happened. That, 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 she, when she held – she did hold up the union sign in real life, but there was dead silence in the rest of the textile plant because there, nobody w- wanted to side with her because they were all in fear of their jobs. And so that happy ending was tacked on. That would be so picked apart nowadays because that would – you know, that would spread like wildfire on Twitter, you know, how the disconnect between the reality and the movie story. But nobody – everybody just wanted a happy ending back then and they were happy to believe it, but it was a, it was a fiction. Wow. Well, we would have known it wasn't going to win Best Picture because it only was nominated for Actress, Original Song, which it won both of those, Best Picture, and, and Screenplay, no director. Mm-hmm. Norman Ritt got screwed because that's the, th- 
three of the movies that he directed were nominated for Oscar for Best Picture Oscars, and twice he didn't get nominated. Also, he got nominated for HUD, but he didn't get nominated for Sounder, and he didn't get nominated for Norma Ray. I'm trying to figure out whether they had something against him. I know he was wrapped up in the the, the blacklist situation back in the 50s and 60s, mm. and I don't know. I don't know. If that tainted him in some way, or or what? Or maybe his his TV background. They just didn't take him seriously, or. Or what? But he, I think he was deserving of a nomination. I mean, this time they gave it to uh, the guy who did La Cage aux Folles, which, you know, I I tried watching that, but I couldn't quite stick with it. Yeah, it oh, was... yeah, I really like it. I really like the original French uh, Cage aux Folles. That's one of the funniest movies. At the time when I saw it, it was one of the funniest movies I'd ever seen. I hadn't seen it for probably 20 years, and it just didn't hold up for me. Maybe it's just not my cup of tea, sense of humor-wise, but I was a little put off by the stereotypes and stuff. It's very strange because it nowadays it might actually win our best picture because it won the Golden Globe for um, Best Foreign Film and it won Best Actor, The Caesars, and for our Oscars it was only nominated for Costume, Screenplay, and Director, which is really strange. So, yeah, it kind of does sort of smack of they have something against Martin Ritt. Um, he was very it should, political. It should be pointed out, though, I don't mean to throw Lacage under the bus because it's, it's important to point out what a huge deal that was at the time. I mean, it was for the longest time the highest grossing foreign film around. It made like $20 million, which, and, and that kind of money for a foreign film was amazing. But then obviously it opened the door to a mainstream audience for a movie about homosexuals, which just wasn't a thing at that point. But so. it was the height of the disco era, too, when that came, movie came out. There were there were clubs all around the country who started to have, like, La Caja Full Night, you know, just because of that movie. All the drag queen shows became that, you know? Mm. And so I, I think it really it really tapped into the to the temper of the times. Uh, yeah. It, was, it did, but it made it approachable to people like my parents who wouldn't have been mm-hmm. within, you know, 10 miles of a disco. So. Oh. For sure, for sure. We should mention that snubbed that year was Woody Allen for Manhattan, which didn't get a Best Picture or Director nomination, strangely enough. What did they feel like? They already already gave it to him for Annie Hall, so they didn't need to do it for Manhattan? I don't know. It was critically acclaimed. Um, It was black and white. Uh, Maybe that was it. I'm not really sure. You never know with the Academy why they do things. There wasn't... The only stigma I could think of was that it involved a 17-year-old girl, and maybe they just that the controversy was a little bit too much for them at the time, although I don't remember there really being that much of a controversy. Uh, but it's possible that that made them shy away from it. Well, wasn't there a time when, um, with Woody Allen, he's kind of anti-Hollywood, and so um, he's more of a New York-like um, filmmaker? And so I guess with Hollywood, which where the Oscars are held... Um, I think there was sort of like a little animosity, animosity towards Woody Allen at the time. Plus, like, like you said, they did give him for Annie Hall. But with Manhattan, you know, I just kind of felt that maybe he's so like... Um, like snooty New Yorker type. Yeah, he's like that yeah. snobby New York way of That's life neat. that he has that, that Hollywood just didn't want to deal with Woody Allen. Now, yeah, time. right. Like Andy, Andy snubbed them when they when they awarded him. He didn't even show up. Yeah, he, he never show showed up. up to the Oscars at all, and made a big deal about not showing up, and made comments about why he didn't show up, about why he didn't think it was important, and why he thought that the awards itself, itself were like a farce. And so it, that was only two years previously too. So it was pretty pretty soon after to be to forgive him for that. 
they eventually did forgive him and forgave him with lots of nominations and, and eventually with another Oscar for um, Midnight in Paris. Sisters, too. Yeah, right. Yeah, that too. He, lots of nominations, but I mean, I'm sure there were some Bruce feelings about that from Annie Hall because he was nominated for so much. Annie Hall was nominated in several categories, and he himself was nominated in more than one category. Well, they filmed him in New York playing the clarinet at yeah. this jazz club the night mm-hmm. of the Oscars. He was right. filmed. And I think that really um, burned the Academy big time. Yeah. So. Maybe. Yeah, it's possible. It's certainly possible that they thought, you know, he doesn't even care enough to. It also could be that they were just a little creeped out, but but they did nominate Mariel Hemingway for that, and um, you know, I don't know, it's weird, but but there were so many great directors that year, so many great movies. It was yet another wonderful seventies, um, you know, year of of really really great. I guess I'm going. I'm going to be the guy who's not really that fond of Kramer versus Kramer. I like it. It's one of those movies that, like you say, Sasha, it's one of those movies. How can you not? How can you have anything against it? I don't hold anything against Kramer versus Kramer. I like it well enough, but I think I've only seen it all the way through maybe once. I understand the significance that it had, and you know, it's really remarkable that there were there had never been any movies that addressed divorced parents and single parents and and those kinds of stories. It's, it's amazing that that was going on since the 1960s, but no movie had ever dared uh, address it before. So that was probably, that, that makes it really significant. But at the same time, it just seems so, so those, it seems it's a domestic drama. It's a small scale domestic drama. And it was, and it just didn't seem like that it can stand up next to Apocalypse Now or even all that jazz or, or the other nominees. It seems small next to them to me. Well, you, you know, know what's what fu- bothers me about it is that, um, it tackled an issue that it, that had been an issue for such a long time in society, the whole notion of women entering the working world and competing on on the same, uh, trying to compete on a level playing field with men. And it makes a movie about those subjects and the consequences of that, but it makes the woman bad guy in the story. The man is the victim of it. And it's kind of, it's a little frustrating to me to see that. It, they should have, I wanted to hear Meryl Streep's story more, but they... They make her a mother who abandons her child, her child, basically. She disappears for most of the film, then comes back, and then she's allowed to redeem herself sort of in the in the huge court scene, which was probably the scene that got her the, the Oscar nomination, because she's fantastic. Oscar win, right? yeah. But then after all of that, after they drag each other through the mud and he loses his job and they spend all this money, at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert, she decides not to take the kid after all. And it's like... It, it seemed like it seemed like there was a lot of bitterness of of men in this story, and it, and it kind of frustrated me. You know, good point. Yeah, yeah really. it is a good point. And and I was kind of wrestling with it too, as now watching it all these years later, being a single parent myself, and you know, after feminism, after Oprah, after anti-feminism, after all that stuff, and and how did this movie depict? women and and was it a positive image and at first i thought no it wasn't because i don't know any mother that would do that although back then if you felt suffocated you just stuck your head in an oven and killed yourself you didn't leave like the the, hours like the hours yeah you were suffocated (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you know we don't we women today don't know what that was like to, to just feel that but on the other hand, what I think redeemed the movie was their performances. And we have Absolutely. to briefly talk about Meryl Streep. This was really the year that she became one of the greatest actors of all time. I mean, it was the year people really realized that about her because she she did – all in one year she did Manhattan. 
She did uh, Kramer versus Kramer. She did The Seduction of Joe Tynan, I think, too, right? Yeah. I think so, yes. And I think maybe one more movie. Um, but it really, for Hollywood, it was like the return of a kind of golden era of like the Joan Crawfords and the Betty Davises and the, and the really formidable trained actresses. And Meryl Streep that year really changed things. And, we're, and Dustin Hoffman, too, by the way, for his part, he was also one of those kind of um, breakthrough revolutionary actors. And but, but you can watch Meryl Streep in this and you can just go like you did with Deer Hunter. Anytime she's on screen, you just say, wow, who is that? That's you know? the thing. The versatility that she showed in those four or five roles in a space of two years, beginning with really with Julia, that small walk-on part, that cameo practically she had in Julia, and then the Deer Hunter, and then Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer. Although they're not, they're, she doesn't do any accents or anything like that, they're all such distinct personalities, and her versatility was really beginning to show. I mean, it was so obvious. And when you watch her in Kramer versus Kramer, she makes you believe that it's possible someone could... She could have played that part so cold and mean mm-hmm. and, and indifferent as she's done. And we saw her in Manhattan do that. It's but, a lead it's a lead role for me. When I see when I think of Kramer versus Kramer, she is the only standout part of that movie for me and she is the only reason that I would ever watch it again is to see her and what she did. She's and amazing. I, I think, she's amazing. And when she's yeah. when she's first leaving and she's in the hall and she's like, Don't make me go back, don't make me go back in there, don't make you know, and she just starts to freak out. That is that whole she makes so much of that that leaving scene. You know, and she makes, like Craig said, that courtroom scene, that's how she won the Oscar, was that scene. I mean, you've never seen an actress do that. I have never. I remember at the time when I saw it, I was blown away, and I was like, what, 14 or something. But, you know, Meryl Streep just made people want to be an actor because she, and Dustin Hoffman was the same way, because she was so good. And I loved Jane Fonda that year in um, China Syndrome, too. China Syndrome, And I would put Sigourney Weaver's performance, not nominated in Alien, as one of the best of that year, too. Um, but, but just quickly to go back to the woman thing with Kramer versus Kramer, I think that there were a lot of 70s movies that kind of looked at feminism from the male perspective, and that was definitely one of them, where it was kind of like, um, you know, on the one hand, women were saying, look at how hard it is to work and raise a kid. It's hard. But on the other hand, the men were saying, you know, this is this is the fallout. This is what what we can expect: crying kids, upset husbands, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think the actors really just sort of made it. Um, they probably less gave so. it more depth than was on maybe on the page or maybe in the in the screenplay. Don't you think? Because when you look at the when you look at the story itself, and when you just hear the synopsis, it seems pretty schematic. But she really makes it come alive, and you really sympathize with her more than you would think that you would. But but overall, I agree with you, Ryan. That that uh, to me, Apocalypse Now is by far and away the best film of that year. And Breaking Away is one of my favorite movies. It's a great movie. If you've never seen mm-hmm. it, it's really really worth a watch. Interesting about Kramer versus Kramer. Before if I don't, I, 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 we're not going to move on. But I mean, in, before we uh, put this in, uh, you know, the the kid was nominated for best supporting actor too. Yeah, and he he actually, yeah. um, Michael told me this. He he cried at the Golden Globes when he didn't win, and right. Um, that led- little bitch. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> 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 no, but when well, do you, well I have punk. to say. Um, do you think Kramer versus Kramer would have won if it were switched around where the man had left? No. And the woman no. stayed? No way. No, no way. No, I no think way. men got off on it because they're, they, they felt victimized by feminism, and I think that's why they, that's what appealed to them about it. 
I think mm -hmm. so. And the Academy is mostly men anyway. And um, Right. But I think Meryl Streep humanized that. Yeah, because I always thought about, like, the changing roles, what it would have happened if he had left instead and came back. That, of course, Meryl Streep would have had a bigger part, but she would have done what she would have done at being a mother. She would have still try to work and take care of the child. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because nowadays where the report just came out that 40% of the population are the females are breadwinners. Right. You could totally do a flip on, um, well, they do it in Baby Boom a little bit, which is a template copy of Kramer versus Kramer with Diane Keaton as the, the woman inheriting the baby, which is very much like Kramer versus Kramer because she's a working woman and what does she know about raising a kid? But you mm -hmm. could totally flip the roles today. You could have the husband be the, the stay-at-home dad and the woman be the working... Um, woman like my sister is and and um, and then he just says I can't take it anymore and he leaves and then she has to do it all you could do that today actually back then no you couldn't have but um, uh, anyway you know what I started to say about the, the kid I can't think of his name in, in Kramer versus Kramer Justin Henry he never, yeah Justin Henry um, he uh, Melvin Douglas won best supporting actress that year for being there it was Melvin Douglas second Oscar he won uh, for HUD in the ni in 1962 or something, Melvin Douglas didn't show up at the Oscars because he said, "I'm 78 years old and I'm and I'm 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 uh, competing with an eight-year-old. This is absurd. I'm not even going to show up." <laughs> yeah, I have a funny passage to read you from from um, Inside Oscar, Damian Bona and Mason Wiley's book. But also, I wanted to just add to that, which is. Um, they wanted Laurence Olivier for that part, that Melvin Douglas part. And Shirley MacLaine famously said that he didn't want to see her masturbate. And that's why he didn't take the <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> um, But this is from the book. It says, this is what Dustin Hoffman said after he won when Justin Henry didn't win the Golden Globe. He said, I think awards are silly. They put very talented people against one another and they hurt a lot when you don't win. Hoffman told reporters he sympathized, he sympathized with his co-star. What Justin was feeling was what I had been feeling when I lost awards in the past. Everyone cheered up, though, when Bette Midler, winning two awards, Best Actress in a Musical and Most Promising Female Newcomer, shimmied to the podium and joked, as Joan Crawford once said, I'll show you a pair of Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love Another that. Another gay icon. You know, <laughs> she was really so much part of the times back then. And I, th I think The Rose is, is an amazing movie. I love The Rose. Yeah. I think it's great. It's I fantastic. do, too. I just love that story of, you know, yeah. the two things uh -huh. happening at once. You know, Justin Henry crying and Dustin Hoffman and then Bette Midler <laughs> coming to cheer everybody well, up. Well, Bette Midler, wasn't she was the closest to Sally Field with the competition goes, you know? Yeah. Um, I would have, I mean, I think Sally Field did a tremendous job in Norma Ray and she deserved to win. But then you think about Bette Midler, who gave just a phenomenal bravura performance. I mean, she was just absolutely like just electrifying. And so I thought it was sometimes very difficult to pick the two women mm -hmm. against each other because it could have been a tie easily because they both gave great performances and what they had to do, especially yeah. Bette Midler. When you see that movie again 30 years later, and then you look at Norma Ray, and then you'll, you'll say to yourself, wow, how could like Sally Field win over Pet Miller sometimes. But it was told, yeah, exactly. But it was totally because they knew Sally Field, and so much of the way that they work is that they reward people that they know for doing something great, like Ben Affleck, somebody they know who did something great with Argo. It's not so much that the movie itself deserved to win, 
but they admired this person from their community doing something right. great. And, and that's well, it's Pierce. also very rare nowadays. It was very rare back then for Hollywood to give Oscars to newcomers too. Right. You know? Even though she had done previous film work that was very like, um, I think like cameo work and she was more of a stage performer, but still, you know, she was a newcomer. So Hollywood was kind of numb on giving Oscars to first timers. It was very rare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, they knew Sally Field and they wanted to give Sally Field an award because she came from like the ranks of television, which is rare for an actress from television to come up, give yeah. such a great performance and win an Oscar. That was a rare because usually from television actors, not like today, found it very difficult to make the trans the yeah from television into movies. And she did it. I know. Superbly. So they had to give it to her. They had virtually seen her grow up. You know, they yes. watched her grow up. They known her since she was a little kid, and so that that adds to the you know the the feeling of affection for her, the feeling that you've known her all your life. Did um did Bette Midler ever win an Oscar or? No, never she's did. never won one. Never had she's been nominated role. twice. Yeah. Oh wow, that must be what kind the, of a What was the other role, Michael? For the boys. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was the jazz. I guess she. Well, not like, beaches. <laughs> It was basically the life of Martha Ray, I believe. It mm. was Martha Ray's life, pretty much. Yeah, and I remember now. It was good, but it wasn't great. It wasn't a great movie mm-hmm. at all. James Kahn yeah. was in it, and it was just kind of a boring film. But she gave a great performance, <laughs> and she her singing was great, and she got nominated. I can't remember the year that was. I think it was in the, either the early 90s or the late 80s. I can't remember mm. the year. Too bad she didn't win. I wonder if she'll ever get another chance. Probably not, huh? If she does, it'd be in a supporting role. Yeah, what a shame. The boys, her nomination for The Boys was 1992. Okay. Mm. I, I was going to say 91. Another crazy thing about that year, this is just sort of random, is that the guy, there was the, the big talk of the town was that the biggest snub was that the cinematographer for The Black Stallion didn't get a nomination that year um, in 1979. That was like all the talk because... It was supposed to be one of the most beautiful cinematography people had ever seen. And what got nominated instead, I'm sorry, Kramer versus Kramer for cinematography. Good that grief. should tell you right yeah. there how much they yeah. love that movie. And the other nominees were 1941, The Black Hole, <laughs> All That Jazz, and Apocalypse Now. So, yeah, I could see why they'd be. The Black Hole was the avatar of that year. It really was because it was the first movie that, that people had ever seen, those sort of special effects. And they were confused about what was special effects and what was cinematography. I'm not kidding. And so it was stunning to look at, but it wasn't cinematography. It was all, it was all, you know, well, I guess it was cinematography. But, but you have to admit it. it was also the first Disney film, I believe, to say the word damn, I believe. It was the first Disney <laughs> film to say a curse word, too. <laughs> wow. The, uh, the cinematographer for um, Black Stallion was Caleb Deschanel, who's uh, Zooey and Emily's father. Oh. He, the same, very same year, he did the cinematography for being there and also didn't get nominated, which is another screwed job. So he basically got screwed twice. Jesus, wow. I'll say. But I, I, I have to say that one of the things the black stallion stands out even now as one yeah, of the best shot sure. films of ever. the two that's definitely the stronger one but 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 still talk, talk about yeah. adding insult to injury yeah and he's been nominated now five times he's Caleb Deschanel has been nominated for five oscars since then and hasn't won yet he's almost like roger deakins you know 
Wow, and he's probably too old now huh, to do anything. Uh, he, I don't know. No, he's born in '44, so he's still relative. He's still, he's still, he's still, he's still young. Yeah, he's, he's uh, this year. He has winter's tail. He, he shot winter's tail, which is supposed to be a pretty big deal. So we'll look forward to that. See how see how that works out. One more thing about being there and about it was Peter Sellers' third nomination. And also, of course, his last, because two months after the Oscars, after Oscar night, Peter Sellers died. Mm, God. He did? Right. Yeah. Peter oh, I Sellers thought, died. I thought, well, I thought this was only his second nod. He's only been nominated uh, twice. No, let me see. I'm for, looking nominated at, for Strange Love, wasn't Strange, it? For Doctor Strange Love. Which he should have won there. for. Okay, yeah, for, yeah, you're right, for actor. I'm looking, I'm right. looking at, uh, he was somehow nominated in for Best Short Subject. Maybe he had... He had produced a best short subject in 1960. Oh, you so he, could be he right. Got a, could be yeah, right. he got an Oscar nomination for that, but it wasn't oh, for okay. acting. Yeah, Did you're, he you're really right. die yeah. right after the Oscars? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my um, God. Wow. Like, well, like um, Melvin Douglas died soon after, too, I believe. He died soon after, too. And he yeah, blamed it on Shirley Like in March. <laughs> That's why he died. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, is he... With Melvin Douglas, I have to say, you know, for him, it's like, if anyone remembers, he was a leading man back in the 30s and 40s. I mean, he was pretty debonair, right? He was really yeah, debonair. Yeah, very debonair. His leading ladies was like, he worked with Greta Garbo, you know, uh, and he was just such a handsome guy, leading man. And then in the late 50s into the 60s, he became a character actor. And, that w- and that's what usually happens. It happened to Michael um, Caine. He was a leading man in the 60s. And then... To show, um, to get for for Oscars, he'd been nominated for Best Actor. He ends up winning two Oscars for Supporting Actor. And I don't think Melvin Douglas has only been nominated once for Best Actor, I believe, for um, I Only Sang for My Father. Mm. And then after that, but he's been a character actor ever since. So, you know, there's still hope for a lot of big actors who are leading men today who have not won Oscars to turn around and win Oscars as supporting characters. Right. That's true. That's there really is that true. transition. So somebody's that like Michael Caine today, I know I'm going off subject, but I say it's like okay. Michael Caine wants to still, he was going to retire, but then he's, he changed his mind because he wants, he's gunning for a best actor Oscar. He'll never know? get it. And I don't think he'll ever get it. He wants to win that third Oscar. He, I don't, but I don't think he'll, he'll ever I get it. But so I just no. think it's great for like, from Melvin Douglas, you know, mm. to go from leading man to great character actor. So this is what Peter Sellers said about being there. He said, most actors want to play Othello, but all I've really wanted to play is Chance the Gardener, Seller told interviewers. Sellers told interviewers. I feel what the character, the story is all about is not merely the triumph of a simple man and illiterate. It's God's message, again, that the meek shall inherit the earth. Not a shame. I love that movie. You know, all, for the how many how many weeks in a row have I talked about Hal Ashby and Hal Ashby directed being there, and I think he finally got his best director nomination for. Mm, not sure. No, uh, I, uh, I, no, he didn't. He did not. Um, but anyway, that, Hal Ashby was really one of the preeminent directors of the 1970s and directed some of my very favorite films. And being there was, I guess, his last really important movie. Was his last great film, but look at his look at his filmography just from the just in the seventies, and this is all in a row. There's no there's nothing in between this. There's the landlord, Harold and Maude, the last detail, shampoo, bound for glory, coming home, and being there, mm. all in a stretch between nineteen seventy and nineteen seventy nine. It's just incredible. 
And he was totally a maverick too. He didn't work under he 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 like he he would not put, uh, put up with or uh, tolerate any studio um, interference whatsoever. He insisted that they rent a house for him, and he would take all the editing equipment into the house, and he would do the editing in private and lock up the print so that the studio couldn't get to it. So he was really one of the last of a breed, you know, that had that kind of freedom. Um, you want to know something funny that I just figured out? Probably a lot of people know about this, but. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola and Bob Fosse were both nominated when he did The Godfather. Um, Bob Fosse won for Cabaret. Mm-hmm. And then The Godfather 2, Bob Fosse was nominated for um, Lenny. Lenny. Mm-hmm. And then this, Apocalypse Now, Bob Fosse's nominated for all that shit. I know. There's like a nemesis. <laughs> the, the two of them together. I, didn't... I tweeted about that two or three weeks ago. Oh, you did? Um, That's yeah, so but funny. it was a lot to try to cram into a tweet, and so it probably didn't make a lot of sense because I was trying to get all those. Uh, titles and dates in there but yeah that's strange isn't it three yeah. times in a row they were up against each other it's really it's weird. interesting because all that jazz and apocalypse now seemed really similar to me rewatching it there's this, this mm-hmm. weird hallucinatory quality to both of them mm-hmm. and they're both of, of all of the nominees they're both the most envelope pushing in terms of narrative and that kind of thing so it's, it's an inter- it's a fitting uh, conclusion to their competition i think talk about going off topic if i can just for a minute if we can go back to 1975 i, I tweeted this again today, today too you know 1975 was the year that jaws came out in june in june of 1975 bob fossey came out with chicago on broadway seven weeks later michael bennett came out with a course line on broadway Hmm. Of course, Lane and uh, Chicago and Jaws were all that summer, all happening that summer. So it wasn't only movies that were spectacular in the mid-70s. Broadway was something really amazing, too. There was there was something uh, that was happening to, to creative people, and I believe it was residual effect of Watergate in Vietnam. And there drugs, was a lot of, don't lot forget. of anger and a lot of frustration in artists that was coming out on, on screen and in their writing. And don't forget the sexual revolution and the drugs, man. What about the drugs? Mm, ab- Acid, absolutely. Pot. Absolutely. Right, okay. the free and the freedom finally to be able to express the sexuality and the drugs in movie in movies because they had the rating system that started in 1968. The NPAA was able to divide up to able to keep younger audiences out of films, but with the ratings, and so they could finally show adult content in movies for the very first time. And both Bob Fosse and Coppola were like, you know, you know, struggled with drug drug abuse, or, or you know, certainly used drugs a lot to fuel their creativity. Coppola mm-hmm. on the set of I mean, Apocalypse Now was like the story behind the set is almost as interesting as the film itself. You know, like from nobody wanted to take that lead role that Martin oh, Sheen yeah. got. Nobody like Redford passed, Nicholson passed, you know, every major actor, Al Pacino passed. They all passed and it, it landed on um, Harvey Keitel first. Harvey, Harvey Keitel, Keitel with, yeah. who got fired. Well, that was such a troubled um, set, that, that whole thing with Apocalypse Now. It was just a troubled set that I was just surprised that the movie was even made, you know. Right. With Marlon Brando to the actors that didn't want to do the film, with Martin Sheen's heart attack and everything like that. That was just such a troubled set. He had a set. heart attack? They were borrowing military equipment from the Philippines, and meanwhile the Philippines was having a, a, a rebel uprising, and so in the middle of shooting they would they would take the helicopters away from location and have the helicopters go fight the rebels in real life. But and th- you know, in the middle of the in the middle of a, in the middle of a, in shooting, you know, right? And yeah, so it's incredible. I mean, I would make a movie about the making of that movie. 
That was there is. more interesting. There is a movie, the documentary called Heart of Darkness. Hearts, Hearts of oh, Darkness. Oh, yeah, that's right. There is. Yeah. But, I, but I mean, maybe just make a movie movie. Oh, that's what yeah. I was thinking. A movie movie. Because yeah. the whole Brando thing, like, Brando was apparently too overweight when he came to the set. And they, oh. and remember that? And Coppola had to dress uh-huh. him all in black and everything. And he was, and hide him in a cave. Because he was- <laughs> like I told Sasha, I told Sasha, I said, Marlon Brando was getting to a point in his career where, he didn't really care anymore about acting. You know, this man was the father of modern acting, pretty much. Every actor followed him. They adored him. I think he got to a point in his life where he didn't really have to really do much anymore because he knew that every director wanted to work with him. He was the man at the time, even though he was kind of falling out of favor a little bit, but they still wanted him. So he could go on a set. He can be fat. They'll, he knew that they would probably fix him up and, and work with him and stuff like that. I, I think he ad-libbed most of that movie anyway. He didn't he even did. like, study the script. Yeah, and I think, but that I believe that Coppola intended for it to be ad lib, but he expected Marlon Brando to, to at least have read *Heart of Darkness*, Joseph Conrad's novel, and yeah. so Brando shows up in the Philippines, and they start to do rehearsal, and Coppola realizes that Brando hasn't even bothered to read the book, and so he doesn't even know what it's about or who the character he's playing or anything. Right. And so he was ad libbing something totally out of his ass. He didn't even know what he was talking about half the time, and so they did. Hours and hours and hours of Brando just rambling, and Coppola had to go through all that stuff and, and extract some stuff to just try to make sense of it. He didn't have an ending for his movie at all because Brando uh, wouldn't help him out. It was an amazing, you know, meltdown disaster. And plus, Brando demanded like two two million dollars or three million dollars salary, and for every day that they went over over schedule, he got. Per diem, and so he didn't care how long it took because it was just more money, more money for him, right? Uh, yeah, for all his greatness as an actor, he was kind of a loony bird towards the end of his career. <laughs> it was really irresponsible. That I, I caught a lot of hell on the site uh, last week because I was trying to defend uh, James Franco. People were saying that he. Uh, you can't take him seriously. And I'd made the mistake, of course, of all the actors I could compare James Franco to. I said Marlon Brando. No, no. Was pretty irresponsible in his <laughs> career, too. And, and, and at least James Franco, when he, he, he at least paid out of his own pocket to have As I Lay Dying made, the movie that he's come out with this year. Franco paid for that movie, half of it himself, out of his, you know, he wrote a check. And Brando, meanwhile, sucked Apocalypse Now dry, almost ruined that movie. It's amazing Mm. that it got made in spite of him, really. And so I was trying to make that comparison, but of course you don't compare James Franco to Marlon Brando. That was kind of a mistake for me to try to do. Yeah, that's asking for trouble. But I was stunned that, I'm still stunned every time I watch Apocalypse Now how good it is. And it's like almost accidentally good. And both both Apocalypse Now and um, All That Jazz were kind of met with lukewarm reviews, I'd say. Some some people said that they were genius works, but other people didn't. And it wasn't like the public was, you know, completely caught up in it the way that they were with um, Kramer versus Kramer. The thing was, was, as we're talking about these 70s Best Picture winners, at that time, Best Picture wasn't just what the little, you know, insider group in Hollywood thinks is Best Picture or pat- patting, you know, Ben Affleck or the actor on the back. It was, it was a movie that really captured the sentiment of the time. It was absolutely, Kramer versus Kramer was the movie of the year that year. Literally, because, you know, Sorry, I didn't mean to. I no, know I was I'm just really going to finish by saying best picture of the year meant that was the movie of 1979. You know what I mean? It, it maybe wasn't the best movie, but it was the movie of the year for sure. 
It's hard to believe that, but Kramer versus Kramer was the number one box office movie in 1979 too. It was number one. It beat Star Trek. It, it beat Rocky II. It beat Alien. It beat Apocalypse Now. It was number one at the box office that year. It earned sixty million dollars altogether. That's so amazing. A, small, a, for a, a drama. little movie, yeah, a, a little movie like that that's made on a minuscule budget, probably. You know. Um, I remember uh, it though. I remember how how what a big deal it was. I remember sitting there sobbing in the theater. And being so happy when Meryl Streep said she didn't want to take the baby. Now I look at it and I go, are you kidding? Take the kid. Yeah. <laughs> but back then it was like, you know, you just wanted this cute father and son to stay together. And they are so cute together. They have such good charisma, those two. I yeah, love watching Dustin one, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that uh, watching that movie, the chemistry between Dustin Hoffman and Justin Henry was so on. I mean, you yeah. believe they were a father and son. They had such great chemistry together. Yeah. You know, so when Meryl Streep's character decided not to take the baby, you were actually rooting for her not to. You didn't right. want her to take the kid because mm-hmm. they had such a great chemistry throughout the entire film. From the be- from the moment he um, is with his son, when, when she walks out of the door and he's with his son until... That last, very last scene. You don't want her to take the kid. You really don't. Even though she won the case, you don't want her. You want them to stay together. And so I was more rooting for just for that fact. I didn't want her because to me, every time I see that film, she always kind of her presence in the film has always been very haunting to me. Since the first scene where where he's walking his kid to school and then you see her off in the distance, like at the diner, she looks like this haunting figure, like a ghost almost. Mm-hmm. And you knew that there was trouble coming. You knew there was trouble coming, and I just—that's when I every time I every time I see this film, it reminds me of this more of a haunting, sort of a lyrical story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know that's my favorite thing about Dustin Hoffman's performance too is how generous he is with that, with uh, Justin Henry. You don't get that kind of performance out of a kid unless you stand back and give him space to do that, and unless you work with him take after take after take to give him time to find it. You know, well he and was so apparently you can really see that that they have a relationship off camera too that really reads on on screen. Yeah, he was apparently a really rambunctious kid too. Like it took mm-hmm. they said he got kept getting distracted and making jokes and you know, it, it took him a while to to get into the groove. And, and they the took that, they took that relationship from the movie through the through the award season. They you and mm-hmm. you truly believe that whole that whole relationship that they had. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, yeah. So, so the narrative, so the narrative of, of the making of the movie, so that every everyone felt that like the the movie um, went beyond the screen. Um, and I have to say, to change the subject, I have to say something about Breaking Away because that movie was such a big deal to my young adulthood. So much so that I tried to start learning Italian because I loved mm-hmm. how the the main character played by um, Dennis Christopher who kind of, um, after another movie he made... Um, fade to Black. Fade to Black. His career <laughs> faded to black. And it yeah. took, like, uh, Quentin Tarantino to help revive his career again. But he's so great in Breaking Away, which started out as a movie that, that they wanted to make about um, how America has a class system. And then they pretend that they don't, but they really do. And Breaking Away is about um, the townies, the, the kids who, the cutters who live in the, this small town Bloomington, Indiana, and they um, they, they like they want to enter this bike riding contest. And it happens to be also um, a, a university with a lot of snotty rich kids who come in and call them cutters. And, and the kid, Dennis Christopher, falls in love with one of the 
rich, beautiful students, and he pretends that he's an Italian exchange student, and he has to keep acting like he's Italian, and um, all the way through to the end, and then she finds out, and she's really bummed out, but they make friends anyway, and it's a really, de- it's Dennis Quaid's first um, movie. It's Dennis Quaid, ja- Jackie Earl Haley, Dennis Christopher, and what's his name? The tall guy with curly hair. What's his name? Daniel. Daniel Stern, who plays yeah. Cyril. Oh, yeah. And if you haven't seen Breaking Away, put it right at the top of the list of all these movies to see. Because of the five, I think it's the movie that if if made today, that would be the one that won. Well, it did walk away with best screenplay, I believe. Did it? Uh, I'll look forward to seeing it. I've only seen it once, just a really, really long time ago, and all I remember is just what it was basically about. And I remember that, of course, it was made in Bloomington, Indiana, because that's just two hours away from my hometown. Mm. If you want to know what my hometown is like, it's like Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> it's really, it really is. It's just like that. I really highly recommend it. It's, it's a movie that totally stands the test of time. It's still as pivotal and meaningful as it was back then when it first came out. And I was really... Um, after I got into the Oscar business and I started doing my website and I started looking back at Oscar history, which I, unlike Michael, I didn't know anything about Oscar history. I only knew the movies that I loved. And so when I look at how the Oscars remembered the past that I lived through, I was really proud to see that they picked Breaking Away as one of the best films of that year because it was such a good movie and so many people loved it. And you know, you'd never think, oh, that's an Oscar movie, but it was really, really good. One thing much of a great feel-good underdog story as Rocky yeah. was, and it's even better. Yeah, and isn't it a movie like The Artist or, or The King's Speech that like would totally win today if it was picked because it's so the feel-good? Yeah, good. but it's even better than those because it has that it has that gritty ground-level feeling for the location that it takes place in, um, and and a feeling for the people, and and a, there's a specificity to it that just makes it so much better than anything that we get today. Amazing, really, that in the history of the Oscars, that almost so many of the movies have taken place on either coast or in Texas or in, um, in big states like that in New York, California, or Texas. Rarely has a movie ever come from the from the heartland of America. Yeah. It was one of the very first, you know. And like Craig, like you said, it captured the the that small town atmosphere so well. It never really had been seen on film before on, in yeah. a movie of that caliber. But Dennis Christopher... And that was a good companion with Norma Ray, actually, because they both really had a, 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 a sort of... not Gritty is not the right word, but a very natural, ground-level impression of middle America. That mm-hmm. you, you really lived in. You know, Norma Ray's yeah. uh, house and her neighborhood, you really feel like they really did live there. You know, it, it doesn't seem like a set in, in any way whatsoever, even though I think the movie's supposed to be set in North Carolina, the textile industry in North Carolina, and then again in Georgia. Nobody wanted to let them use their factories, so right. they finally were able to get uh, some little textile factory in Alabama to let them use the. So e- Alabama's the stand-in for North Carolina, but it still has that same feeling, that small town, southern town, okay. small southern town. And they go Very and specific the, and detailed. The reason mm-hmm. they're in the town and the dad works at the at the rock quarry. You know that's his job. That's why they're called cutters because they all work at the the rock quarry cutting cutting rock. And then the kids find the the quarry that the quarries that got turned into um, swimming holes. And they go mm-hmm. and they swim in the in the swimming holes. And then the the rich you know university kids come and swim in there too sometimes. And they get in these you know fights or swimming contests and stuff to see who's better. And the different personality types of the four boys are so interesting because Dennis Christopher wants to be like a, a high-speed bicycle racer to race with the um, the famous Italians 
who kind of screw him over when they when he gets to race with them. Um, and you know he's dreaming of a different life. He wants to be better. He wants to date the the pretty girl, you know. And then you have Dennis Dennis Quaid, who's never going to get out of that town, and is kind of burning out, but was the big football star and has nowhere to go, mm-hmm. um, you know. And then you have Jackie Earl Haley, who gets married in this really cute wedding scene, and and has the great scene where they when he quits his job, don't forget to punch the clock, shorty. <laughs> Punches the clock and gets. See, five. that's the film I have to see because I haven't really seen it from beginning to end. I've yeah. seen bits and pieces of it, so I I'm sitting here listening to what you guys have to say about it, and I'm more I'm more like want to go out and find it to see it because um, it wasn't that film that grabbed my attention at the time. Yeah, you got to I'm going to wa- make Emma watch it too cuz she'll love it. I think it's a much better movie than Norma Ray. Norma Ray kind of sl- uh, uh, drags in the middle and I I'm kind of it does really bother me that they, that the total that the ending is totally false that the ending really didn't happen that way and once they get into the union negotiations and stuff like that it, I re- I like the story about Norma Ray finding herself and learning to become a grown-up um, independent person but the subject that it's supposed to be about about unions it doesn't really deal with that to to my satisfaction at all so for me breaking away is a much more complete and satisfying overall film experience and i haven't seen it for years and years but it still left an impression on me Mm, it's great it's a great movie who directed that who directed breaking away oh yeah peter yates wow yeah and uh, paul dooley is wonderful as dennis christopher's dad um and um who plays the mom? It's uh, Barbara Barry. Barbara, Barbara Barry. She got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And she's great in it, too. She played Barney Miller's wife in the 70s as well on mm. TV. She's wonderful as the mother in Breaking Away. We could Hart probably Bochner, make a... Hart who, who played the douchey... Yeah, Hart... Corporate guy, Die Hard, played the douchey frat boy in, in Breaking Away. He's, he's perfect as the douchey guy. He's so douchey in Breaking Away, too. He's so mean. He plays the, like, jock that, that is dating the girl, pretty Kathleen. That actress, whoever she was, was so pretty. She never went anywhere. I mean, that was, like, it for her, right? Uh-huh. I don't think she ever had another part after that. Maybe, could be, you know, really. So many of the people really just seem like that they were, you know, cast from the town. But that's one of the reasons it seems, in my memory, that it seems so authentic. But you part probably, of it... Probably list the, the the movies that are like Breaking Away on on like two hands. There are probably ten movies in the entire history of Oscars that are the, of that scale that made it to Best Picture. Yeah, right. I know. It was really surprising looking back that it actually did make it. I mean, I think it just got to people's it played on people's heartstrings because it has that incredible feel good ending, which is really great to watch. But um, um, it, it really struck home with me because I grew up in Ojai, and in Ojai, Ojai is a town that like is all private schools. It's totally the town where rich families send their kids to boarding school. Like we have maybe five or six big, big boarding schools there. And we were totally the townies. We were totally the cutters because we went to the mm. one public school in town, you know. Of course, things have changed now. It's a really upper upper middle class, you know, hoity-toity place where Reese Witherspoon lives. So it's totally changed. But back then it was like that. It was very much like a cutter kind of situation. If you've ever lived in a town where there's a university that, that takes in a lot of students from elsewhere, prestigious university, you would imagine something like Princeton, you know, mm-hmm. although, you know, it's not even as if uh, the university in Bloomington is all that prestigious. It's the be- it's probably one of the best uh, universities in Indiana, but it's really just the University of Indiana. That's really all it is. As far as I'm as far as I know, it was just filmed at University of Indiana. So it's a state school, kind of. But yeah. it's still it's still it's a place where 
people from all over came. Yeah, you know? and they and they did have yeah. a the. I think it was it was more about the point was that the townies just didn't go to college. Exactly, and know? if people and it's people who come from other from other states have to have money to go there because you don't get in-state tuition. Yeah, you know, so that all all the out-of-state students would have, would have come from wealthy families and would have looked down on the on the on the lower class. You know, people. but the the ending all comes down to a bicycle race, which is like. It's one of those like bad news bears kind of, you know, ragtag team up against the fanciest, nicest bikes, the meanest people, you know, <laughs> and you mm-hmm. just root for them. And, and when, when Dennis Quaid gets on the bike and he can't even ride and he's riding this shitty bike because Dennis Christopher won't get on the bike because he's so bummed out and disillusioned. I mean, that is a really powerful scene. I haven't watched it in a while. Craig, did you just recently watch it? Yeah. Do you remember that part? Like, it doesn't yeah. that really sort of he, have um, a... uh, Christopher had crashed and was hurt, and he had ridden most of the race all by himself. It was supposed to be a tag team where they keep switching lap to lap, but he was the only good rider, so he raced most of the race, ended up crashing, and was pissed because they were going to lose, and Dennis Quaid didn't want to race because he just, the whole thing was ridiculous, but ended up giving in because he didn't want Douchey Frat Boy to win. So he ended up taking a couple of laps and enough for Dennis Christopher to get um, to get back on and, and, and finish. Yeah, wonderful movie. Great movie. On paper, it seems like a total cliche. I know. And, and, and if you're at all a cynic, you're, you're telling yourself that it just sounds terrible. But I'm a total cynic and it totally worked on me, so... And just the chemistry, the chemistry, because the actors are all so personable. They're all so likable. Every one yeah. of them is so likable. Like Sasha was saying, they're all so different, and yet they're all so realistic and believable. On the other hand, in comparison, I don't, just out of the, it just occurs to me that all, uh, an alien, the, everyone is in such a bad mood on the Nostromo and alien. Everyone is like cranky and, and, and really pissed off, and, and really Scott intended for them to be. He ignored them, and he, he, he sort of played them against each other. He wanted them to have that attitude where they would all kind of like have this resentment and hatred toward each other. And so that comes across in the film, and those kinds of movies, it was a really dark film. And so that's one of the reasons why, as great as it is in retrospect, we look back on Alien as being uh, um, a, a pinnacle of science fiction. That kind of movie probably was really hard to swallow for a lot of people back then. And I imagine, too, the just the the violence of the special effects probably was stomach-churning for people. Mm. Well, those are characters that you really didn't like, like, in the mm. beginning, until yeah. towards the end when you started to root for for the Ripley character. But in the beginning, you did not like these characters because they all had sort of some, type, some type of thing against one another. They were all, like, just fighting each other and, mm-hmm. and throwing out these petty little um, quips about one another so towards mm-hmm. so when they all started getting killed off you kind of started rooting for the alien but then towards the end when Ridley is the last survivor you're rooting for her 100 percent absolutely yeah. and you know in the original screenplay um uh, the, the, the crew was all male there was uh, they they uh, really scott changed that when he when he got hold of the script he wanted to have a, a woman in as part of the crew i read the, that the uh, the screenplay had been sitting around 20th Century Fox just for, for like over a year. Nobody wanted to deal with it because it was like a really kind of crappy B-movie type screenplay. But after the success of Star Wars, all, every studio wanted to do a spaceship movie. And that, that was the only thing stu- uh, 20th Century Fox um, owned. That was the only spaceship movie that they owned. And, you know, the name of it was called Star Beast. <laughs> <laughs> the original title of Alien was Star Beast. Title. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Another and, thing about Alien, I'm glad you brought it up, actually, because um, those people, the people in Alien were all also working class. I mean, those were basically space truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And in Breaking Away, you had the miners. And in Norma Ray, you had the mill workers. And it's just another example of a movie about that strata of society that they don't seem to talk about so well anymore. I'm thinking of uh, the Blue Claw movie last year was a piece of shit with uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, totally unbelievable blue-collar type people. (laughs) The thing that's unbelievable about those type of blue-collar people is you never have to see them doing any work. They're blue-collar, but they're not working blue-collar. The you know, blue-collar the, the because blue the people, says they're blue-collar. Exactly. The blue-collar people that you saw in the 70s, you actually see them on the job. You right. understand but why. Even in a movie like Alien, their blue-collarness is a thing. It's, it's a part, of, it's a part mm-hmm. of the, not just the milieu, but just it's, the, it's who the characters are. And it's important. Yeah, to the it's what they're doing, too. They're car- in space with, with what they had. Um, they were familiar with the technology of their time. Right. You know, they mm-hmm. all had a craft. So it was like blue-collar... 400 years from now, you know what I mean? Right. Exactly, right. Yeah, although you know. they're still like carrying around, um, you know, um, wrenches and stuff like that in their back pocket. It's like stuff you have to do by hand. You have to repair the spaceship by hand. Right. You know? <laughs> and they're like, um, what's his name? Is chewing gum. Yeah. Kodo, he's chewing, he's chewing gum and stuff like that. I mean, they, he tried to make it relevant for today's time, but it was just set like in the far future. And they're smoking cigarettes. Everybody's smoking exactly. cigarettes. <laughs> it's crazy. It's insane. Um, you know what this movie is actually based on, do you? There was I... a 50s sci-fi film that it's based on. Like Forbidden Planet? No, it's called It. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes Th- sense. Yeah, yeah the that's same what that movie is actually based on. Just a bunch of misfits thrown together in an isolated remote area, trapped in a, in a sort of claustrophobic place together, right? Right. And the creature yeah. was, you never see the creature hardly because in, in that 50s version, you, all, you only saw the shadows of the creature. You never saw it fully. Mm-hmm. You know, and they also did the same thing with they did with Alien. They used the airlock. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, kill. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's amazing. I never made that connection before. That's fantastic. I mean, it's a cheesy B movie. But it if really, yeah. If you're curious about it, I would say go and, like, see it. It's very cheesy. It's 1957, I believe, but it's very cheesy. But Alien is basically ripped off from that. Uh-huh. I remember it. I don't. I've seen it. I don't remember. It. I don't remember it as well as you described it. But yeah, now that you now that you mentioned, I can see the connections. And they so used women in the film. Oh yeah, did they? Yeah, they had like I think one woman. Uh, it wasn't all men. There was a woman, I think, on like yeah. on board the plane. Of course, in the fifties, you would have to. You have to have a little bit of a of a you know a sex appeal going on. Well, yeah, you had to have the damsel in, in distress. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was nineteen fifties. Raquel Welch or somebody. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Raquel Welch. (laughs) (laughs) Raquel Welch playing a nuclear scientist. Oh, no. That's so perfect. Um, So, yeah, 1979 was a great year. Um, The the only movies that they could pick from Inside Oscar that didn't get nominated that year was um, Manhattan, 10, Fedora, Despair, The Marriage of Maria Braun, Picnic at Hanging Rock, The China Syndrome, Escape from Alcatraz, and The Warriors. So not not a terribly bad year for, you know, snubbing of Fantastic. great movies. I would say Marriage of Maria Braun is probably Fassbender's. It's my favorite movie of his. My number one all-time favorite movie of, of oh, yeah. uh, Fassbender's Marriage of Maria Braun is fantastic. And talk about a great role for a woman. Amazing. Yeah, she... she um, 
according to this book, she really took the critics by storm. It was like the blue is the warmest color of its time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it yeah, like, and it was really erotic and sexual too, you know. Yeah. And yeah, she and was her career. I mean, that was a, a, a break. Hannah, Hannah Shagula, something like that. I yeah, I don't know what name. happened to her after that. Yeah. I don't know if she got anything from. She may have done some more with Fassbender, but I'm not. I think that was it as far as her as her international career went. I think that she probably did a lot in Germany. But a lot of a lot of actresses are like that. Uh, a success, an international success, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come to Hollywood. You know, the one thing I think that the Oscars should do that other other um like awards do in other countries is like when you're like if you're in australia or in, like in england or in france they give like honorary um awards to um foreign actors i think the oscars should start doing that like because there's so many foreign films that are being seen they should be able to pick a um a favorite foreign male and lead actress and give them, if it's not an Oscar, like a citation or something like that. I think the Oscars need to become more um, international in that respect. Because the foreign awards, they do that. They give um, awards to Americans and other actors from other countries. Maybe not their big award, but they do give them an honor for like best foreign actor. And I think we need to start doing that with the Oscars. I don't know how you feel about it, but I sometimes think they should do that. It's a great idea. It's really hard to get the Oscars to change even the most insignificant rule. They make such a big deal about even changing the qualifications, eligibility for best song or whatever. They act like that it's, uh -huh. that it's uh, you know, it's like tearing their heart out to do that. But that's a great that's a great idea because um, the international film um, situation is. I mean, they they just they have so compared to American films, the international movies is just to blow blow American films away usually. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the thought Hollywood should start because they keep saying they want to be um, international. Well, I think that would be a, a step in the right direction. Like, they don't have to give them an Oscar, but at least give them a citation that this is the favorite male foreign actor and actress, like, of the year. Mm -hmm. The Oscars idea of being international is to give uh, uh, Oscars to the French movie that takes place in Hollywood. The artist. <laughs> the artist. <laughs> That's the thing, though, is that they're a U.S. trade group, and they're more interested in promoting American movies than they are in foreign movies. When they say they want to be more international, they mean they want more people overseas to watch our movies. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, you're true about that, yeah. Or we want to make movies that people overseas will see. But unfortunately, like, a lot of the foreign films are actually sometimes 100% better than most American films. Yeah, so sometimes, yeah. but this year sometimes not all the time, but Let I would say I would say at least sixty percent of the time. I just find sometimes a lot more foreign films are just more are far more enjoyable to like to look at than most American films. I mean, we've become so um, used to now seeing car explosions and car chases and stuff like that instead of seeing. Like the seventies, in my opinion, is the last great decade of, of really great human drama. I would phrase it maybe like this. I would say that the best four or five American films of any year can stand up shoulder to shoulder with the best international films of any of any year. But after you get past those top four or five American films, then there's a really steep drop off in in quality and intent and seriousness and um, uh, prestige or what I hate to use that word because I got chewed out for that. But here, here, yeah, no, I hear you. I totally agree with both. But let me read some movies that 
didn't get nominated that they didn't mention an inside Oscar that are worth mentioning, which is um, just for whatever reason they were popular or they were great, what, um, uh, or they're just, you know, they were movies that you remember from that age. When a Stranger Calls with Carol Kane, Tess with uh, Nastasia Kinski. Um, Polanski, right? Yeah, Roman Polanski. And we sh- he doesn't mention Alien, but of course you have to, to mention Alien. And the seduction of Joe Tynan with um, Meryl Streep in that. Quadrophenia uh, with The Who, of course, really famous um, musical. The Onion Field, which launched James Wood's career. Nosferatu, Werner Herzog. North Dallas 40 with Nick Nolte, which is a great movie. Uh, My Brilliant Career. Um, starring Judy Davis, Moonraker, which was one of my favorite James Bond movies. <laughs> oh my God, you don't say that. No, it's, it's like true. My least favorite it's true. James Bond movie no, I know. Time. It's like inexplicable. It's, my, it's like it's one my, of the worst things I could ever say because people are horrified when they hear it. And it's oh, only no. because I saw it when I was a kid. Um, Meatballs, Ivan Reitman with, uh, you know, Bill Murray. Meatballs was awesome. Yep. That was one of those ones I liked when I was a little kid, too. As far as movies that were tops at the box office that people were actually paying to see. But wait, uh, I'm not done. Steve. I still oh, have okay, to sorry, do sorry, Mad sorry. Max. Mad Max, starring Mel Gibson. Oh, yeah. Fantastic, famous. right? Uh, Love at First Bite, which I don't know if you guys remember, but I remember as a kid. Totally remember. Remember. Has the vampire, yeah. I do not, I do not <laughs> drink vampire vine. He goes, I do not drink <laughs> vine, and I do not thing. smoke shit. <laughs> a Little Romance with Diane Lane. I don't know if you guys remember that, but that was a kind Sweet of a movie. big deal. I remember that movie. Lawrence Olivier is in that. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence Olivier is in that. The kids He's the are matchmaker all, or something, right? The kids are all right. Another another um, rockumentary about the Who. Um, oh. The Jerk with Steve Martin, really famous at the time. <laughs> Hair, Hair, starring Treat Williams, uh, was 1979 also. Which is actually a very good musical that you know I think if it were made today would have got a nomination for Best Picture. And a movie called Hurricane with Mia Farrow, which was produced by um, Dino De Laurentiis. And I have to tell you, by some weird coincidence, my sister Lisa and I had gotten into the premiere party for Hurricane with Mia Farrow. I don't know how it was we were there, but I just remember being inside this giant tent with, like, ice sculptures and movie stars all around. And we were in the... (laughs) The premiere party for Hurricane. I've no, I still have no idea to this day how we got <laughs> oh, wow, that's and why we were there, but we were there. Um, and I think it was the same year that um, is it was it the same year as Xanadu? With um, I think Xanadu was. I want to say eighty. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was like the next year. Yeah, it seemed well, like Greece the same was time. The, when was Greece the year before? Greece was seventy-eight. Okay. Yeah. Um. But anyway, that that was the year that me and my sister had gone onto the beach where they were filming Xanadu, and we actually got an autograph by Gene Kelly. Wow. We met him, and, and he autographed a coffee cup, which I have now lost because I'm an idiot. Oh, wow. I know. Isn't that insane? But I'll never forget that. He signed our Styrofoam coffee cup. <laughs> it's a movie that made almost as much money as Apocalypse Now that is famous for um, Bo Derek. Ten. Yeah, Remember? in ten. Yeah. Uh, that was 79. And the Tin Drum, famous. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. Volker yeah, Schlondorf. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Those are those are all the movies that came out that year. It was a pretty good year, even if nobody noticed those movies at the time. What are our personal under- picks? Best Picture. Oh, like if we were picking, if we were nominating five for Best Picture? Not even like- five. What's your pick for the winner? What's your, what's your pick for Best Picture of the year for 1979? Apocalypse Now for me. 
Mm, no doubt. I think that would be a far and away apocalypse now, and right after that would have to be Manhattan. Do you want to ring in, Michael, or are you going to... I, I, you know, I have to say, it's. I actually love Kramer versus Kramer. I, I, I love that film. I, I would definitely say either Kramer versus Kramer and a close second would have to probably be um, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. yeah. But I'm going to go with... Um, Either being there or all that jazz. Mm, good, good fix. Yeah, those would be my probably my my in my top five, both of them. And I would have to put Marriage of Marie Braun in my top five too. And my guilty pleasure from 1979. I'll, I'll take some of the heat off of you for Moonraker, Sasha. My guilty pleasure for 1979 is Spielberg's 1941. Mm-hmm. I think that movie is so much fun. There's nothing That's guilty about that at all. It's a wonderful movie. Yeah. It's just it's just it's just so um kinetic. It's just everything is always in motion in that movie. Nothing is ever still. Everything things are falling apart constantly in that movie. Hmm. Crazy. The thing about a lot of these movies is that they also become reevaluated years later. Like I believe all that jazz when it first came out did not really have a lot of attention to it. No, not at all. But years later is cuz I remember used to see it used to be a two-star film when it used to come on television they gave it like two stars but now when you see it years later i recently saw it i think a year ago when i was still on the east coast and it, and it came on television i think on tcm i think and they gave it three and a half stars so obviously it's been re evaluated since then yeah, I think so, too. I think probably it suffered from something that you talk about sometimes, Sasha, when you are coming off of Cabaret and Lenny. If you don't if you don't match those or top them, people think that you've really fallen off. But looking back in retrospect, I would say that it stands pretty well uh, alongside those those two films. I think those are three pinnacles. That yeah, came. I think that th- they get better. Like like you say, reevaluate it. But I also think that just enough time has gone by to just forget all the backstory of Apocalypse Now, to forget about the drug taking and the heart attacks and weird Marlon Brando, and just look at the pure movie. And it's so good. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's so good. It's it, the thing about Coppola um, that he's different from a lot of directors, even in the seventies, is that he shot so high. He tried so hard to make the greatest movie. And because he shot so high, it shows with his films. He's like Hitchcock in that way. Like his scope mm-hmm. is just so large. And you watch, we watch Kramer versus Kramer and then started watching Apocalypse Now. And it's just like, I know that um, Kramer versus Kramer is a great movie. You could put anybody in front of that movie and they're going to love it. You know, you mm-hmm. get to know the characters. Dustin Hoffman is incredible and Meryl Streep's great. Apocalypse Now to me is just on a whole different level and i would go after that i would go with breaking away would be my second choice for film imagine blogging in 1979 if as much as we and it's easy to look back now and not not hold a grudge against kramer versus kramer but if standing alongside apocalypse now can you imagine that the fans that apocalypse now in manhattan and alien even and all that jazz would have and how kramer versus kramer would just be attacked right and left by being not substantial enough right Another thing, too, though, is that in the Internet age, every little hiccup and burp that happened on Apocalypse Now would have been instantly reported all over the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And even before it ever had a chance to be seen by audiences, it already would have been marked as a disaster. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it probably yeah, would have been so because true. of that. And can you imagine yeah. what they would have done to Marlon Brando? They would have made him give a press conference to, like, apologize for things he said and stuff. Mm-hmm. He would have been a total mm-hmm. meme. 
there would have been little Facebook things all over with Marlon Brando. Would have been like Grumpy Cat. Next to Grouchy Cat, Grumpy Cat. Exactly. And they would be like, can you believe he said that? Or, you know, God forbid the... No, it would never have passed muster that... Just that um, that, um, scene with the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, you know... Mm-hmm. Oh right, absolutely. We've gotten gained controversy. There's so. Many, can you imagine if it had come out what the kind of drugs they were doing on the set, <laughs> and what kind of apologies they would have to do publicly for that? But could you imagine Marlon Brando even apologizing for anything? No, but but Probably he would not. have he to. Would never do that. You know? Can you imagine today's day and age? They make you apologize. You you have to apologize now. You have to like come up and say, "I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to do that." You know, I'm so sorry if I offended anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still smoking a bomb? <laughs> I'm glad we're going to have. Uh, you mentioned Tess. Sasha is being produced in 1979, and it was. It was. That's that is when it when it came first came out in Europe. But for some reason, it didn't qualify for the Oscars until ninth until the following year, and it was actually nominated for six Oscars the following wow. year. Wow! And it won three. It won for best cinematography and costume design and best set direction. So when you think about what Polanski had gone through only five years previously, and Hollywood was already ready to forgive him to that extent that they would uh, nominate his a movie that he had to make in another country because he was no longer allowed to come back to America. Right? Yeah. And so he had to, and so I, I had, there, I found a, a quote somewhere, um, Polanski talking about the Oscars that is on a par with Bunuel's quote about his disdain for the Oscars. And I'll have to try <laughs> to find that. And I'm glad I have another week to look for it. But it is absolutely the same sort of um, attitude toward the Oscars as Bunuel. It's something like, who would want one of those things when you look at who they hand them to? Yeah, that's kind of like what Woody <laughs> Allen said. He said, I, yeah, you know, yeah. you can't feel happy about winning one when you see who. They don't make any sense, you know. All right. Um, well, and that, so with that, we conclude our podcast of 1979. Thank you for joining us, Michael Gray. Thank you. Old friend of mine. Lots of fun to meet, and good to meet you, Michael. Good to meet you guys, too. Yeah. You've been listening to episode 32 of Oscar Podcast with Greg Kennedy from livingincinema.com. Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com and special guest Michael Gray.